Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Last time, we talked about a stunning upset at Florence early in May 1864. Rebel cavalry, led by Colonel Johnson of Roddy's command, stealthily crossed the Tennessee River and surprised Colonel Rowett's scattered forces of the 7th Illinois, compelling them to give up the town after a brief resistance. But by May 17th, Rowett, together with reinforcements from the 9th Ohio Cavalry, had retaken control of the North Bank for the time being, and the rebels withdrew south of the river. Before we continue discussing the progress of military events in the early summer of 1864, let's explore in greater depth lawlessness and depredations committed both in and out of uniform, specifically at the hands of locals from the Shoals region directed against their own neighbors. As we've seen before, the advantages of wearing a federal uniform, including power, authority, and the ability to move with relative ease throughout the occupied country north of the Tennessee River, provided the less scrupulous and criminally inclined element of the community the means and opportunity to prey upon civilians. This was especially the case among the so-called Home Guards, local Southerners ostensibly loyal to the Union, who served to garrison the federally occupied territory and operated in many cases within their own communities and among their relatives, neighbors, and acquaintances they'd had before the outbreak of the rebellion. As such, in addition to the advantages of wearing a uniform, they had a home court advantage, so to speak, with familiar pre-existing networks of kin and relations to support them materially with supplies and information in a country which was well known to them. And the historical record is quite clear. Some of them, without a doubt, took advantage of these conditions and acted without orders to commit unlawful abuses against their neighbors. They earned notorious reputations for themselves, and the infamy of their misdeeds has long outlasted the war and persists to the present day. By the end of April 1864, one such local gang had begun to attract the attention of federal authorities. Citizens apparently came to federal headquarters and protested such activity, naming the responsible parties, appealing to federal authorities to intervene. Federal officers, as a general rule, were scathingly intolerant of such behavior among enlisted men. Not only did it undermine their strategic position by stirring up mistrust and civil unrest within the community they occupied, but it also undermined their own authority and ability to enforce discipline within the ranks. Word of the depredations passed up through the ranks and came to the attention of General Dodge himself. Colonel Rowett wrote to General Dodge on April 23rd, quote, received communication from Major Murphy complaining that Thrasher with his men are committing many depredations and asking that Thrasher be ordered to report to him. Citizens make frequent complaints of the depredations committed by Thrasher's men. End quote. 
Dodger responded the next day, quote, The man Thrasher you speak of I know nothing about. He is not in my command, nor ever has been. You better inform Major Murphy. He must belong to the state troops. Any of his men committing unauthorized depredations will be arrested if they come within your jurisdiction. End quote. The man Thrasher, which may be the source for what later morphed into the rather sinister sobriquet That Man Thrasher in Wade Pruitt's Bugger Saga, undoubtedly refers to Elias Thrasher. Elias Thrasher was 2nd Lieutenant of Company B, 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry. Major John Murphy, formerly of the 5th Tennessee Cavalry, led the loyal troops of the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry, headquartered at Clifton, Tennessee. This same command was celebrated in Thomas Jefferson Seipert's memoir, Tried Men and True, and maligned as the villains of Bugger Saga. For now, we will not go into greater depth with Bugger Saga. It is essentially an anthology of folklore, compiled by its author Maurice Wade Pruitt from stories he heard about the war years from older relatives, many decades after the events occurred which they purport to describe, sometimes accompanied by footnotes from historical research, sometimes not. As a record of the collective memory of the war in the lore of Northwest Alabama, it's a popular and invaluable resource. However, it's not actually a primary source, and therefore I do not give it primacy in my own research. Bugger Saga is replete with stories featuring the atrocities committed by or with the ascent of Elias Thrasher and others of his uniformed gang, who, according to Pruitt, collectively bore the nickname the Clifton Shebang. Aside from this very sparse reference to him in the official records, I mostly know of Elias Thrasher and his character from my research into the Southern Claims Commission. Elias Thrasher's name appears over and over again in the SCC petitions from Lauderdale County, both as a character witness and as a petitioner himself. Ironically, Given what we now know about the reputation of his command for committing depredations, in light of his service as a federal officer, Thrasher's reputation on paper appears to have been good as gold and beyond reproach in the decade after the war as far as the SCC investigators and commissioners of claims were concerned. They merely took the fact of his rank and service in the Union Army at face value, without any further question, to mean that his word was reliable. And indeed, his word alone appears to have been perfectly sufficient to make or break some petitioner's claims. Elizabeth Parker's claim, for example, simply concludes with the terse memorandum stating, Reported disloyal by Elias Thrasher, Florence, Alabama. And that was the end of it. Her claim was rejected. Nevertheless, as one reads deeper into the SCC documents, not every mention of Thrasher within the testimony is glowing. In the petition of James Calvin Myrick, one of the most convoluted and hotly contested in Lauderdale County, Mr. Myrick reports a rather sordid interaction between himself and Elias Thrasher after Mr. Myrick had been reported to the special agent, Richmond, for further investigation regarding the validity of his claim. Quote, 
I was reported to Mr. Richmond on Monday. On Tuesday, I was in town, and Mr. Elias Thrasher told me I was reported, and I said I would go and see Mr. Richmond. He advised me not to go. He said he would make it all right. He was drinking a little and seemed to be excited. I told him, very well, do so and I will make it all right with you, or I will satisfy you for your trouble. There was no amount stated. He and I were good friends and are yet. End quote. If we take Mr. Myrick at his word, then Thrasher knew he had substantial enough influence to sway the investigation in Mr. Myrick's favor. And for his trouble, Myrick could make it worth his while when the check from the government cleared. Nor was it the only time Thrasher was offered money for his trouble. Then there's the very curious claim of George Pruitt, one of the barred and disallowed claimants. Elias Thrasher was sworn as a witness in support of his petition. The facts of the case revolve around one horse, a, quote, very fine bay mare, end quote, a horse which George says his father had given to him. Allegedly, in November 1863, the horse was among six others taken from his father's property on the same occasion, and the only one that George claimed ownership of. George's father, Elias Pruitt, said he knew the men of the squadron who took the horses. One of them was Elias Thrasher. Mr. Pruitt further states that George eventually joined Thrasher's own regiment, the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry. Pruitt's discharge paper proves he enrolled in Company E of the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry on May 12, 1864, for 12 months' service. Mr. Pruitt continued, quote, A man named Brewer was in command of the squad. He told me that his colonel sent him there. They had been there before, and I treated them well. They said Colonel Murphy sent them, end quote. According to Thomas Seipert, who organized the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry and commanded Company A, the company was only just organized on October 2nd, 1863, at Nashville. If the family remembered the date correctly as November 1863, then taking Mr. Pruitt's horses would have been one of the very first actions of the recently formed regiment. Seipert states, however, that the regiment remained in Nashville until the 18th of December and only reached Waynesboro, Tennessee on the 24th. This is squarely at odds with the family's testimony. The issue of dating aside, however, the claim seemed to be a good one and on track for approval. The investigator, Richard Avery, summarized his findings, quote, this seems to be a good case. Claimant was a federal soldier and is said to have made a very good one. The only question will be the ownership of the horse, and the father's testimony is given. He swears he lost six at the same time his son lost this one. End quote. The elder Mr. Pruitt remarked to Avery, quote, I have never made a claim for my own. I did not think it was worthwhile. I did give a list to someone from Washington, but I disremember his name. End quote. Thrasher's own testimony, however, revealed a deeper problem within the narrative of events, namely that the taking of the horse was an unlawful act of theft, not an official government requisition. He also carefully avoided placing himself at the scene, which is inconsistent with the family's testimony. 
while still claiming to have knowledge of the situation. He was, after all, one of their witnesses. Thrasher's statement goes as follows, quote, I am well acquainted with George Pruitt the claimant. In regards to the horse he is claiming pay for, I know all about it. In September 1863, William D. Broadstreet and a number of young men was on their way to Nashville, Tennessee to join the Federal Army. In passing the place of the claimant's father, W.D. Broadstreet took a bay mare supposed to belong to the claimant's father. When Broadstreet arrived in Nashville, he joined my company. The mayor was examined by the inspector of the command, and it was condemned as being unfit for service, and W.D. Broadstreet was then notified by the quartermaster that he would not issue feed for the condemned horse. Broadstreet then sold the mayor for $35 and kept the money himself. In 1864, George W. Pruitt, the claimant, joined my regiment. He was but a lad at the time. I have reasons to believe the mayor belonged to his father, who was a secessionist. At the time, Broadstreet took the mayor he was not a soldier, but on his way to join and be mustered in, which was done afterwards at Nashville. The mayor was sold by Broadstreet and not by the government. About six weeks ago, G.W. Pruitt offered me $25 if I would not testify against him in this claim. I am on friendly terms with the claimant." In response to this, the attorney, Thomas Fullerton, who handled numerous SCC claims from Lauderdale County, included a statement in which he greatly impugned the reliability of Elias Thrasher. He states, quote, I doubt very much the propriety of taking the unsupported statements of Mr. Elias Thrasher in any case on any subject. I had a personal interview with him on the 12th of July last, 1874, at Florence, Alabama, and I became satisfied that on account of his violent prejudice against the poor colored people is most violent and unreasonable." End quote. He then goes on to state that it was a perfectly common practice for a father to give their son a horse, that he remembers growing up on a farm and having the same experience with his own father. And then, quote, As there are some concealments in Thrasher's statement, which are inconsistent with an honest intention to do the claimant justice, I respectfully submit it should not be allowed to stand unsupported. The claimant's witnesses all agree in their statement that there was present at the time a regular squad of troops in command of an officer, one Brewer, a lieutenant, and Mr. Elias Pruitt says Mr. Elias Thrasher was among them. And if his own statement is correct, he was a second lieutenant lieutenant in Company B, so that there were two officers present. Thrasher, in making his statement, is careful to conceal this fact, and well he might. For if it is true that Broadstreet, a citizen, took the horse without any military authority, Thrasher, with the uniform of an officer and Brewer also, stood by and allowed an act of pillage committed in the name of their government. If it was not an authorized act, as the Pruitt family were led to believe, then Thrasher enjoys the honor of having held a commission as an officer in a company of horse thieves. For the credit of Colonel Murphy and Lieutenant Brewer, I think Thrasher had better be required to make a more complete statement and also have it corroborated. 
Another improbability is apparent in his statement. Thrasher calls the elder Pruitt a secessionist. If this be true, he was not much prejudiced in favor of the Union Army, and if you were to add to this the other fact that all his stock and his son's mayor had been pillaged and stolen from them by a band of men in the name of the U.S., it is not at all likely that that son would in six months have followed his uncle and entered the same service. It is not worthwhile to comment on the fact that the claimant has offered $25 for Thrasher's peace. The man who confesses that an attempt has been made to bribe him is confessing too much for his own good." End quote. The commissioners of claims were not satisfied, and even in light of Fullerton's extensive diatribe against Elias Thrasher, placed supremacy on the word of a federal officer in the matter. Quote, we are not satisfied with the sufficiency of the evidence. Thrasher says the claimant's father was a secessionist, a fact which alone accounts for his failing to present a claim for five or six horses, which he swears were taken from him at the same time. We reject the claim. End quote. Fullerton only had the available evidence at hand from witness testimony, supplemented by his own personal rapport with Thrasher. But if he had had the benefit of investigating the official records, I think he would have felt even more justifying in alleging that Thrasher enjoys the honor of having held a commission as an officer in a company of horse thieves. In the closing days of the war, the infamy of the gang within the 2nd Tennessee Mounted Infantry would continue to grow and culminate in a truly ghastly series of crimes, which has a truly incredible personal connection to me. But I'll talk more about that in a future episode. For the time being, in May 1864, Thrasher and his men were already making an ignominious reputation for themselves. And while the type of misdeeds they dabbled in may not have been unique to their gang, and indeed may have been common, what is extraordinary is the fact that they were local men from the Tennessee Valley who donned federal uniforms and, instead of enforcing law and order, turned their attention instead to abusing their neighbors. To be fair, Thrasher and his men were not the only ones engaging in malfeasance. The temptation to plunder, as we've seen time and again already, was an ever-present reality within all military outfits on both sides. Small bands of soldiers appear to have been particularly susceptible to the urge for plunder. Without the oversight of a high-ranking officer, the reality was that such intimate groups could act largely with impunity. Such extra-legal activities appear to have been largely somewhat politically neutral regarding the selection of victims. In the SCC petition of James Haynes, who lived on Bumpus Creek near Waterloo, his witness, Mr. Till, a former Confederate, offered his very telling observation, quote, There was a lot of loose squads of men about the country that used to hail from Roddy, Forrest, or Wheeler's command. They went about in bands from 10 to 20, and they were often robbers and horse thieves. If they saw a man with a good horse, they took it. It mattered not what side he belonged to, end quote. Curiously, Mr. Till claimed he didn't know of any ill-feeling or mistreatment of Mr. Haynes on account of his unionism, which makes his comment all the more revealing. 
In Mr. Till's opinion, Haynes's property had been taken by the loose roving squads of rebels simply because he had something to take, not because he was a unionist. Mr. Haynes also says that once he was asked to deliver a letter from a man to his wife, which he knew contained rebel troop movements. Instead of delivering the letter, however, he handed it over to Colonel Murphy. Quote, Under the circumstances, I thought it was excusable. End quote. Although the political affiliation of the victims of plunder may or may not have been relevant to the attacker, it must be understood that it was often not an anonymous crime. The victims and the perpetrators were often known to one another by name as members of the same community. Knowledge of a person's reputation for unionism was sometimes a factor in their being targeted for theft or violence. In the petition of Thomas Holmes of Rogersville, his witness, James Stanford, explained, quote, Neighborhood boys came up here and took his stock because he was a union man. It was a common word then. He's a damned old union man. Take his things. End quote. In this example, the theft wasn't committed by soldiers in uniform, but by neighborhood boys up to no good, hooligans for whom Mr. Holmes's unionism was as good a reason as any to harass him. Stanford says, amusingly, that when their father found out, he returned what they had stolen. In Mr. Stanford's mind, it was anything but an isolated anonymous incident, and unionism was not an irrelevant detail. Quote, it was the custom to take things from union men. End quote. Horse stealing appears to have been especially common. Mr. Stanford recalled an incident at his own home. Quote, they came one night to my house and made my wife get up and go before them all over my place and hunt up my mare. Threatened to shoot her if she didn't find the mare. Said they heard I was a union man and wanted a union man's horse. End quote. William Gottney says in his petition he was injured by Southern soldiers from his community whom he knew personally, including John Wilson, Bud Richardson, R. Burney, a man named Clemens, Hammonds, and James Whitehead. They took from him a horse, threatened his life, and abused his family. James Hurston says John Wilson and James Whitehead told him they knew Gottney was giving intel to Union troops and intended to kill him. By his own admission, this was correct. Mr. Gottney said, in proof of his loyalty, quote, I have given information to the Union troops. John Pierce, Jack Pickett, Morgan Pitts, in the 2nd and 4th Tennessee have received information from me. They were friends and acquaintances of mine in the Union Army. They and other Union troops, acquaintances of mine, came to my house when they came to the neighborhood, had themselves and horses fed, end quote. It was in many respects a calculated risk that was not without benefit. Quote, the Union soldiers whom I knew from my neighborhood and from other places never molested me. Some of them were Ace Foster, a scout for the U.S. Army, Morgan Pitts, Company G of the 4th Tennessee Cavalry, and other Union soldiers have had my family and property protected at the time of the war. End quote. Gottney, like many other Unionists from Lauderdale County, eventually went north to the relative safety of Pulaski, behind the lines of the Federal Army in the fall of 1864, as the situation in Lauderdale County was becoming extraordinarily desperate.
We will now return to the progression of military events in the Tennessee Valley in May 1864. As the massive Union army under General Sherman pressed further into Georgia, the necessity of securely holding the long railroad lifelines from Nashville called for a redistricting, which resulted in Brigadier General Robert Granger being given command of the newly created District of North Alabama headquarters Decatur on May 30th. Granger, a native of Zanesville, Ohio, had only just marked his 48th birthday one week earlier. As he gave Granger the command, Major General Thomas commended him, quote, in relieving General Granger from the command of the post of Nashville and ordering him to the important one of protecting the lines of communication of the army operating in Georgia, the Major General commanding the department desires to tender him his thanks for the untiring energy, zeal, and ability which have characterized his administration of a responsible and difficult command." End quote. It will be a post which Granger will execute with all the aforementioned qualities Thomas praised him for, right on through to the most climactic days of the war. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss skirmishing at Cortland between Roddy and Federal forces, and its larger strategic significance, and the state of conditions for people of color in North Alabama during the Federal occupation. Please stay with us. As General Thomas explained in his orders, the primary responsibility of the Federal Officer Corps stationed within the District of North Alabama was the protection of the lines of supply and communication from Nashville south into Georgia. It is critical for us to realize that the military operations in North Alabama did not exist in a vacuum. They were a subplot to the campaign in Georgia, evidenced by the fact that most of the reports and correspondence from North Alabama at this time are found in Volume 38 of the official records, which deals exclusively with the Atlanta campaign. As Sherman orchestrated his symphony of conquest, he and the other key players could not leave the District of North Alabama out of their minds. The territory encompassed by the district was the vulnerable flank due to its proximity to the rebel-held areas south of the Tennessee River. Decatur, especially, as a railroad junction on the south bank, was especially threatened and thus was especially essential to fortify. Riding at 7 a.m. on May 19, 1864, Major General McPherson explained the current disposition of federal forces in North Alabama, revealing the impressive strength the federal army was bringing to bear in the Tennessee Valley. Quote, List of troops of the Army of the Tennessee guarding the railroad and stationed near the line of railroad north of the Tennessee River. First, 3rd Division, 15th Army Corps, 3,100 strong, stationed at Decatur, Huntsville, Brownsboro, Woodville, Larkinsville, and Scottsboro, with detachments at all the bridges, tanks, etc. between these points. Second, troops of the 16th Corps stationed as follows. 3rd Brigade, 4th Division, 16th Army Corps, at Decatur, 1,600. 
part of 1st Alabama Cavalry at Decatur, 250, detail of 14th Ohio Battery at Decatur, detail of Company B, 1st Michigan at Elk River, parts of three regiments of colored troops stationed from Elk River to Decatur, 1500, details of 7th and 2nd Iowa and Convalescence, 2nd Division, 16th Army Corps, guarding railroad from Linville to Elk River, about 600 men, 7th Illinois Mounted Infantry, guarding river from Decatur to Florence, 500. Ninth Ohio Cavalry, stationed at Pulaski, Athens, and Decatur, 700. The colored troops remaining, the number of men required to relieve the men of the Army of the Tennessee, 7,000. This number is particularly astounding when one considers the fact that the population of Huntsville, then as now the largest city in North Alabama, was about 3,600. The sporadic nature of the Confederate-led raids required a constant degree of vigilance on the part of the federal commanders in North Alabama. As I have emphasized already, the main concern remained that the railroad lifelines could be disrupted. If a stealthy rebel group were to cross the river undetected and strike the railroad at a trestle, for example, it could hinder the process of the campaign in Georgia. And if it were Forrest, for example, who had an excellent track record going head-to-head -head with the far-flung federal garrisons, it could be disastrous, with not merely one trestle threatened, but the whole rail line causing weeks' worth of delays. The federal army, therefore, had maintained a constant presence along the river from Decatur to the head of gunboat navigation at Eastport, Mississippi. However, this represents a line of operations 75 miles long. They simply couldn't be everywhere at once, and there were inevitably gaps in their sentry net. For the time being, by late in May, the responsibility fell largely upon the shoulders of the 9th Ohio Cavalry. For now, it was clear the immediate danger on the North Bank had passed. The center of gravity for federal operations in North Alabama remained the line between Pulaski, Athens, and Decatur. Therefore, Brigadier General John E. Smith informed Brigadier General Gresham on the 17th, On Colonel Rowett being satisfied the enemy have recrossed the river, he may return with his force to Athens, scouting the country on his way back as far as Rogersville. End quote. Gresham himself told Rowett the same day, quote, "...have just received your dispatch of yesterday per courier. If you have driven the enemy across the river, and I have no doubt of it, and congratulate you on your success, you can either take up your old position or return to this place, as I do not feel authorized under present circumstances to give you orders for the future. The Ninth Ohio Cavalry are expected to return to Decatur." End quote. Without getting too far off course, explaining what is admittedly a very complex state of affairs, the constant relay race-style shuffling of federal officers through North Alabama at this time made the chain of command bewildering, even to those at the time, as the very frustrated Prussian-born Brigadier General Matisse expressed when he complained to General Smith on May 22nd, quote, General Starkweather requires my report by order of General Russo at Pulaski, I believe, told him to get me relieved by Sherman's order, cautions me to do the best for the service. I am very sick of all this and getting unable for service. End quote. 
it wasn't always necessarily clear who would be relieved when and by whom, and who was the proper authority in the meantime. It would not be much longer before the 7th Illinois were on the cars bound for Georgia anyway. They were instructed to pass the torch on to the 9th Ohio and the 1st Alabama, as General McPherson informed General Thomas from Woodland, Georgia, on May 19th, quote, I have directed the 7th Illinois Mounted Regiment of Infantry now patrolling the river from opposite Eastport to Decatur to be dismounted, and their horses turned over to the 9th Ohio Cavalry and 1st Alabama Cavalry to mount the dismounted men of these two regiments, End quote. I find this somewhat confusing. The date doesn't quite match other sources I have, specifically Thomas Fanning's regimental history of the 9th Ohio. He doesn't say that the 7th Illinois was dismounted until June 17th, almost a month after McPherson supposedly gave the order. And on May 31st, Colonel Howe at Decatur informed Brigadier General Smith, quote, I have ordered Colonel Rowett to go to Lamb's Ferry and watch that crossing, end quote. Clearly, they had not been dismounted if they're being given orders to go on yet another reconnaissance mission to watch for rebel forays across the shoals. Fanning's 9th Ohio, after participating in the action of May 17th with Rowett's combined force, moved by way of Decatur to Mooresville, where they established headquarters. In any event, when they received the 7th Illinois Mounted's horses, they picked up the baton of sentry duty and themselves were scouting between Athens and Rogersville. Following their withdrawal back to the south side of the Tennessee on May 17th, in the wake of their strategic success versus Rowett's scattered company, General Philip Roddy's forces returned to their own comfortable stronghold centered around his own hometown, Malton. It was a position from which they operated virtually unopposed, and previous attempts by the Federals to dislodge them had proven wholly unsuccessful, such as we saw earlier with Colonel Phillips back in March 1864. At the moment, the Federal command seems to have been willing or able to do little besides watch them closely. Brigadier General Gresham, reporting back to Nashville from Athens on May 18th, explained, quote, for a month past, Roddy has been in front of and in the neighborhood of Decatur, with two small brigades, commanded by Colonels Johnson and Patterson, and amounting in all to 2,000 or 2,500 men. It was part of Johnson's command that crossed the Tennessee and drove Colonel Rowett away from Florence. Have just examined a dozen or more prisoners captured by Rowett at Florence Sunday last, and they all tell the same tale, which confirms the information I got from other sources. Roddy's is the only force near Decatur. This information is reliable. Forrest was at Tupelo last week. End quote. Some federal officers in North Alabama clearly were still nervous about the rebels lurking so close to their flank, especially in light of the ease with which it had been manifest they were able to cross the river at will. Brigadier General Matisse pessimistically explained to Major General John E. Smith from Decatur on May 20th, quote, 
the Rebs don't allow any more refugees to come in. Last I learned was that Roddy and Patterson moved up the river. Shall inform you if I learn more. Cannot leave here. Have in all fourteen hundred men effective. Roddy sent a flag of truce to Pulaski for exchange of prisoners. We have no troops at Florence. They, no doubt, will cross there, finding the road open. I telegraphed at once to Sawyer for a good regiment of cavalry for that side. If the poor Ninth Ohio cavalry arrives, I shall send somewhere you direct it. End quote. In light of the fact that Decatur was so heavily fortified, and Florence was considered the place of greatest vulnerability because it was not garrisoned by a federal force, Pulaski was considered the most likely target of a raid, owing to its relative proximity to Florence and remoteness from the heaviest federal presence. General Smith explained this to General Russo from Huntsville on the 22nd, quote, the greater portion of the troops stationed at Decatur, and the whole of the guard from that place to Mud Creek near Stevenson, is furnished by my command, 3rd Division, 15th Army Corps, numbering about 4,500 men. Three regiments of this division at Decatur, one guarding bridges from Ladder Place to Indian Creek. The road is threatened at Pulaski by Roddy's forces, who are concentrating and making preparations to cross at Lamb's Ferry, mouth of Elk River, as soon as 17th Corps moves out. End quote. As General Smith alluded to, in addition to being a stronghold, Decatur was also a point of departure for Union forces en route to join General Sherman in North Georgia. Orders were issued on May 22nd for Major General Blair, commanding the 17th Army Corps, to move his 10,500 men by way of Decatur through northeast Alabama to join the rest of the army at Rome, Georgia. Sherman also ordered Colonel Eli Long to move his force from Pulaski to meet Blair at Decatur. They were to give the impression that an expedition to strike deeper into central Alabama was their true objective in order to cover their movement and to keep the rebel cavalry too occupied to come unencumbered to Johnson's aid. General Blair's force departed Huntsville for Decatur at 6 a.m. on May 26, 1864. As Colonel Long rendezvoused with General Blair at Decatur, he received orders for a mission to strike at Roddy's comfortably threatening position within striking distance of Pulaski and provide a wider berth for the Federal eastward movement. His orders from General Blair spell out with great precision the goals of the mission. Quote, Move with your command and a brigade of infantry, which will report to you, to Cortland, in the vicinity where Roddy is reported to be camped. Attack and drive him away, doing him as much damage as possible without extending the pursuit too far. You will then move down in the direction of Moulton, giving the impression that you are the advance of this corps going south and southwest of that place. In order to more effectually give this impression, it is desirable that the infantry should be deployed as much as possible. Should you find yourself strong enough to move on Moulton alone, you will direct the infantry to fall back on this post, otherwise to take the infantry with you in that direction. You will march from Moulton to Somerville, in the vicinity of which place you will rejoin this command. Upon leaving Moulton, you will order the infantry to march to this place, moving with your cavalry if possible, so as to cover them. 
In case you find it necessary to take the infantry farther than Cortland, you will send notice of the fact promptly to these headquarters. This movement on Cortland and Moulton is considered of great importance for two reasons. First, to drive Roddy's force away and prevent their crossing the Tennessee. Second, deceive the enemy as to the destination of this corps. A section of artillery has been ordered to you to accompany your column as far as Rome. Please report frequently your progress and any information you may obtain. The infantry have also moved, and it is suggested that you send a small body of cavalry to cover the front until you overtake them, which the general commanding trusts you will do as soon as your command is in condition to move. End quote. General Roddy, riding from Moulton on the 29th, informed his commanding officer, Forrest, at Tupelo, who in turn reported to General S.D. Lee at Demopolis the resulting events. Quote, on the 27th, six regiments of cavalry, four of infantry, four pieces of artillery advanced from Decatur toward Cortland, impeded their progress as much as possible as far as Cortland. Following morning, cavalry was retired in direction of Moulton and infantry toward Decatur. Last night, moved my command here and attacked at daylight, fight lasting three hours. Force engaged estimated at 3,000. I withdrew three miles south for position, enemy not pursuing and is now going in direction of Somerville. End quote. Forrest then included an endorsement, stating that Roddy, essentially, had taken the bait with regards to the true intention of the federal maneuver. He also pledged greater support from his own Mississippi force. Quote, General Roddy thinks they are moving to the interior of the state, and estimates their force at 8,000 or 9,000, half of which is mounted, and which guard about 400 wagons. We'll leave here in the morning with command at daylight, via Fulton and Russellville. End quote. The federal officer responsible for guarding the area of vulnerability was the commander of the garrison at Pulaski, the 35-year-old New Yorker-turned-Wisconsin John Converse Starkweather, who had been assigned to the command on May 16th. Starkweather reported intel to Nashville on the 31st, claiming that an advance of Forrest's men was in the neighborhood of Cortland. Quote, Forrest's advance is reported to have been at the crossing of the Moulton and Lambs Ferry Road with the Decatur and Cortland at sundown last night. Colonel Rowett has been instructed to move to the Elk River crossing to Lambs Ferry to observe the enemy. Many small bands of rebels are reported around today. End quote. Intelligence continued to filter in that Forrest's men were coming to Roddy's aid. Colonel James H. Howe reported to John E. Smith on the 31st, quote, A woman has just come in, leaving Hillsborough at daylight this morning. She reports that three companies of rebels came in there last evening at sundown, calling themselves the advance of Forrest's force. These soldiers said Forrest was coming up with his whole force to attack this point, end quote. The constant shuffling of commanders through North Alabama had left Howe unsure of who his superior officer was, and who had the right to give him orders. He wrote to Smith's headquarters on May 31st, quote, Please have it settled at once to whom I am to report. General Starkweather at Pulaski sends me orders. End quote. 
General Smith, however, by this time, had been ordered to exit the wings of the drama to take center stage in the melee with the rest of Sherman's forces in North Georgia, and to move out of Huntsville bound for Chattanooga. And Starkweather, for his part, foreseeing a raid on his garrison at Pulaski, was sounding the alarm and trying to scrape up any and all available forces for his defense. Riding to Nashville on June 1st, Starkweather almost sounds frantic, even considering the terse quality of telegraphic communication in those days. Quote, Have we any forces from Memphis or in that direction moving this way? Fighting is expected Saturday or Sunday at Leeton, that our forces drove the enemy to Town Creek and fought them Sunday. Some of the dead had been seen at Florence. How is this? Think Rowett's cavalry in 9th Ohio at Decatur should be on the river. Artillery should be here, as before advised. End quote. That same day, Starkweather forwarded two dispatches to Nashville. He doesn't say from whom, which is odd. It could be from Colonel Howe at Decatur. The second dispatch states, quote, The officer I sent out this morning on Cortland reports by orderly that he has driven the enemy's pickets about six miles, that citizens along the road report Forrest on road with 5,000 men, Roddy with his command at Moulton. I very much need some heavy guns. Cannot you procure and send me some? I have but eight-pounder pieces. I have alluded by telegram and otherwise to the necessity of artillery being here. The command is now without drill, my pickets and patrols out. End quote. Starkweather then offered his own summary of the action of the morning of June 1st. Quote, Force sent out this morning from Decatur have returned, were met by the enemy in strong force seven miles out. Cavalry and infantry command was followed to Decatur picket line. All right. Made the enemy demonstrate somewhat. Forrest is locating at the crossroads leading to Decatur and Lamb's Ferry. General Smith was at Decatur, but did not assume any command, and someone should be fully authorized immediately, as nothing can be done without full authority. End quote. He also responded to Colonel Rowett, who apparently had noticed the sound of the skirmish and reported back to Starkweather with some alarm. Quote, Firing heard by your patrols was between the enemy and forces sent out from Decatur this morning. Forces returned tonight all okay. Met enemy in heavy force. Forrest is at crossroads of Decatur and Lambs Ferry Roads. Keep your patrols so as to have full information as to movements of the enemy. Ninth Ohio Cavalry have come from Morrisville to Decatur. End quote. Over the next few days, it became clear that Roddy had again withdrawn to Moulton, and that the supposed presence of Forrest near Cortland was only an anxious rumor. Colonel Howe informed Brigadier General Smith on June 6th, quote, A scout just in reports that Roddy had left the Cortland Road two days ago and was at Moulton with the principal part of his command, and Forrest has not been at all and is not near here now. End quote. Starkweather did not rest easy, however. The vulnerability of the railroad remained a vexing logistical problem, as he explained to headquarters. Quote, Different bands of enemy are endeavoring to strike the railroad between this and Nashville. Fired two of my blockhouses last night and a bridge. Did no damage. I have started out strong detachments to follow or hedge them in. End quote. While the presence of Forrest in North Alabama had proven to be a rumor, only barely, since, as we saw, he pledged to move to Roddy's support via Russellville, 
General Sherman, for one, did not underestimate the reality of the threat he posed, and recognized how close he had been to slipping behind Union lines. This very revealing message to William Soy Smith on June 12th gives a startling insight into how close Florence came to being literally under fire for occupying the weak spot in the Federal defensive line. Quote, I think the expedition sent from Memphis on June 1st has drawn Forrest from his plan of reinforcing Johnston or striking our roads. I think our roads are best covered from Decatur, with cavalry in reserve at Pulaski, guarding well Lamb's Ferry and Florence. You may send notice to Florence that if Forrest invades Tennessee from that direction, the town will be burned, and if it occurs, you will remove the inhabitants north of the Ohio River and burn the town and Tuscumbia also. Gunboats will patrol the Tennessee above and below the shoals, and whenever you want a cavalry force to cross at Eastport or Waterloo, you can order up a ferryboat from Paducah, convoyed by a gunboat. If Gillum has 4,000 men mounted, he should be south of the Tennessee River, in the direction of Columbus, Mississippi, with Decatur to fall back on. He can better protect Tennessee from there than from Nashville. At all events, he should be between Columbia and Florence, in motion. Cavalry should not occupy the same camp two successive days, and should habituate their horses to grass and green food." End quote. And the next day, he summarized the situation to Governor Andrew Johnson. Quote, I have no doubt the enemy contemplated that Forrest should enter Tennessee about Florence, at the same time that Morgan slipped into Kentucky. It would be well for Gillum to be on the qui vive about Lamb's Ferry, but I think the late rains have rendered the passage of the Tennessee difficult, and Forrest is occupied elsewhere. End quote. Though he sounds rather debonair, Sherman certainly fully understood the magnitude of the threat Forrest posed. After he whipped Federal forces sent out from Memphis under command of General Sturgis, Sherman reported seethingly to the Secretary of War, quote, Forrest is the very devil, and I think he has got some of our troops under cower. I have two officers at Memphis that will fight all the time. I will order them to make up a force and go out and follow Forrest to the death, if it costs 10,000 lives and breaks the treasury. There never will be peace in Tennessee till Forrest is dead." End quote. While I admire Sherman's confidence, Forrest would continue to pose a dire threat to the Union Army on through to the final days of the war, and Sherman's prediction of where he would strike would soon prove to be quite prescient. The essential role of guarding the railways between Nashville and Georgia fell largely upon the shoulders of the formerly enslaved people of color who were now serving in the ranks of the Union Army. As he gave orders on May 19th, stipulating the disposition of the forces under his command, Major General McPherson commanded, quote, The colored troops will remain on the road. End quote. The reason for this was largely, as we've seen before, to spare white soldiers from performing this duty, and because it was still generally not accepted that black soldiers were fit for actual combat. Despite the fact they now wore federal uniforms and filled the federal ranks, prevailing racist attitudes about people of color still dominated the white officer corps responsible for their disposition. 
Indeed, as we've seen elsewhere, priority was often given to keeping black men out of the Union Army altogether so that they would be available for more stereotypical roles performing manual labor. It was apparently common enough for recruiting officers to draw men away from such roles to join uniformed regiments that the high command intervened to stop it. Orders came from Sherman himself on June 3rd, stating, quote, Recruiting officers will not enlist as soldiers any Negroes who are profitably employed by any of the Army departments, and any staff officer having a Negro employed in useful labor on account of the government will refuse to release him from his employment by virtue of a supposed enlistment as a soldier." End quote. Not only was the service of black men in uniform often considered by Union officers to be more a detriment than a benefit, but surprisingly, even their labor for the government was not without caveat when it appeared to be injurious to the planter class. Orders issued to Colonel Edward Anderson of the 12th Indiana from Brigadier General John E. Smith on June 8th state, quote, From representations of citizens residing along the railroad guarded by your command, and the approval of such statements of officers, it is ascertained that the impressment of Negroes from citizens residing near the line of the road is, at the present time, working so much injury to the agricultural interests of that section of the country that, for the time being, it will be discontinued. Consequently, instructions issued from these headquarters of date June 1, 1864, relative to the impressment of Negroes for chopping are hereby revoked. The Negroes will be returned to those to whom they have hired, and you will direct your officers on the line to assist the railroad in procuring the necessary wood for such use, so far as the same can be done with the men in the command without the injury to their duties. For this work, the men receive extra pay, the conditions of which will have been made known by the contractor, Mr. Higgins." End quote. Despite the extermination of the old slave system, Alabama, after all, clearly fell under the jurisdiction of the Emancipation Proclamation, and the veritable social revolution that was underway with regard to the social standing of people of color. These orders are much more reminiscent of the conciliation policy in the early days of Union occupation in 1862 than the liberal interpretations made by General Dodge regarding slaveholding that we saw earlier in 1864, for example. Nevertheless, such regressive interpretations aside, it is clear that a revolutionary shift had taken place and was still underway. The fact remains that people of color had escaped bondage by the thousands, and whether their fate was to serve in uniform or labor as nominally freed people, it was the presence of the Union Army that facilitated those outcomes. In North Alabama, some of them found their way to government-run plantations, where they labored in exchange for lodging and rations, in an arrangement which, on the surface, bears little dissimilarity from the plantations of the slave system. The difference being, of course, that no more were they or their children liable to be sold as chattel, and they were free to go where they pleased. 
A report from a Lieutenant Harris at Decatur, dated May 1st, sheds light on the scale of operations in North Alabama to provide for the formerly enslaved who had sought refuge in the Union camps, and reveals their demographic makeup in unusually precise detail. Quote, I have the honor to submit the following report for the month of April 1864. The number received in the different camps during the month is 1,327, colored. The number received up to March 31, 1864, 1,263, making a total of 2,590, of which 1,529 are 12 years old and over, 1,061 are 11 years old and under, 979 males, and 1,611 females. They are located as follows. On Brown's Plantation, 205. River Plantation, 80. Alex Carter's Plantation, 697. Reynolds Plantation, 205. Rivers Plantation, 80. Alexander Carter's Plantation, 7. Thomas Jones Plantation, 5. Cobb's Plantation, Limestone County, Alabama, 303. The number detailed during the month, 20, making a total of details 286. The number of deaths, 40. Have drawn and issued 35,778 rations during the month. Have built 50 houses this month, making in all 75. About 500 of the people are yet in rail pens and sheds, but it is hoped to have soon comfortable quarters for all. Have planted 1,000 acres of cotton, 200 acres of corn, three large gardens, and have about 200 acres ready for planting. Since January 1st, 1864, 350 pairs of shoes have been bought and distributed among the people, also a number of blankets. Some contributions have been made, but nothing comparatively to what should be to supply the wants. I am carrying on various kinds of labor, at the same time milling, sawing lumber, building houses, blacksmithing, and agriculture. The expenditure is as various as the labor. All has been accomplished in four months. On the 1st of January, the first camp was organized near Pulaski, Tennessee, without a dollar to start with. All the money expended since then has been procured by picking cotton at two cents per pound from cotton raised on the Phillips and Reynolds plantations, picked, ginned, and baled by the contrabands on those places, and from the tax collected in accordance with General Thomas's order. Though the amount derived from the last-named source is less than I should desire, yet my time has been too much taken up in the organization of new camps to make collections. The accommodations for the sick have been poor, but I am now building hospitals. The supply of medicine is quite limited. During the advance of the army, but little attention has been paid to the educational department, but I hope the schoolmaster will not always be abroad, and as soon as teachers and books can be procured, schoolhouses will be built. End quote. Thomas Fanning, of the 9th Ohio, observed one of these same camps on May 19th. Quote, left Athens for Decatur at 7 o'clock a.m., and passing through swampy roads, arrived at Decatur at 3 p.m. There is a fine government plantation four miles this side of Decatur, which is filled with Negroes of every age, who seem healthy, well-fed, and proud of having the blessings of freedom as well they may be. End quote. It was certainly a comfortable narrative that Fanning subscribed to, and conveniently omits the extent to which the existing racially stratified social order was still in force within the Union ranks. 
We will see later on how, at a fateful moment in the war, black servicemen will gallantly hold out against crushing odds to secure a critical Union victory. But it's important for us to realize that people of color by this time were occupying crucial roles in the larger strategic framework of the war in North Alabama, especially as they served in uniform, garrisoning the railroad, which we will soon see was certainly not without significant risk. Join us next time as we discuss the summer of 1864, as Sherman continues his drive into Georgia at great slaughter and great personal cost, and the outlook for the success of the rebellion grows increasingly dim, but not before dealing a series of heavy blows to the Federal Army in North Alabama and Middle Tennessee at the hands of the very devil, Forrest. Thank you so much for joining me.